Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, welcome to City Light. I hope you guys, Thanksgiving, uh, were amazing, and you're stuffed and excited, and it's just awesome. So uh, my name is Austin, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, back in September, we started walking through First and Second Samuel, specifically looking at the life of David, and it's been incredible so far. I mean, we've seen so much. Like, so a young shepherd boy defeats a notorious giant somehow. Uh, we've seen an earthly king uh, abuse his power, walk in fear, and disobey God. We've seen drama unfold, adultery, murder, victory, restoration, battle. I mean, we've seen all of these beautiful things. We've seen uh, a man get a seat at the table that he didn't deserve. We've seen God fight on behalf of his people and rescue them from danger. But ultimately, our prayer, and I think really what I've gotten out, is that we've, through these books, through this study, we've seen a, a clearer picture of who Jesus is, right? That's the goal, the desire to look through our Bible and see Jesus in it. And he's become more beautiful. And so we've seen that he is the king that we've all been waiting for, right? He's the better king, the one that wouldn't mess up, the one that would rule in peace, justice, love, and mercy. And so uh, it's just so beautiful to see him. And we're going to continue that today. This is going to be last Sunday in our Second Samuel series. We'll be in chapter 24. And uh, so you guys can open up your Bibles there. But as we're getting there, let me ask you this question. Um, have you ever had a time where you were a little too overconfident in yourself and uh, you came up short? Like, have you ever had a moment like, like that, where you're a little too confident and came up short? Well, may not know this about me, but I'm kind of a, a dodgeball fan, okay? So through my years of college ministry, I grew a love for it. We played it like every retreat and every men's thing. We just did it a ton. So uh, I love it. And before I was married, my roommates and I, I lived with 10 other guys, it was kind of crazy, uh, decided to do a dodgeball tournament. And so we're, we're getting excited. We go there and we just start wrecking through the teams. Like, like it, was, it was crazy. I and mean, we had a stacked team, like college, uh, collegiate, like they played prior, football, baseball, basketball, and then this little old me, right? And so we're having a blast. We're just going through all of these teams, like destroying them, having so much fun. And then this one team uh, gets everyone out besides me. Okay, so it's just me, and then the other team has four guys and one girl, and so I'm there, and um, and I'm just pleading on you know on behalf of the Lord, you know, hey Lord, would you help me, you know? And so we're going through again. There are hundreds of people at this tournament, like all watching, all excited. It was literally crazy, and um, and and then just so. Those guys, and, I, and the Spirit of the Lord just rushed upon me, and I start pulling some Jackie Chan moves, right? I'm doing spins. I didn't know what my body could do, you know? I'm, like, catching it. And so, uh, literally, uh, the guy throws it. I catch it. He's out. With that ball, throw, get another guy out. Now it's just the two guys, the one girl, and I'm, like, getting excited. I catch another ball, so that guy's out, and throw it and get the guy on the run. And so, and the crowd's going nuts, by the way. Like, everyone's going crazy. I'm, like, whoa, you know, kind of, like, just taking this in. So, I'm excited. It's wild. And, um, and then from that, uh, I'm at an all-time high for confidence, by the way. You know, I think I'm setting world records right here. I think I'm really like hot stuff. You know, I'm like this, I'm unbeatable at this point. And so I'm getting excited. The girl grabs the ball. I grab a ball. We start walking towards each other like, hey, what's going to happen, you know? And, uh, and, and, uh, 
again, the, the crowd's like all cheering, going crazy. And at this point, I'm kind of dancing like I'm cool. She throws the ball just kind of like this. And again, she's a small, like little college, kind of afraid girl that is in the corner. Goes, and I duck to like be cool, and it just snips my shoulder. And the crowd goes wild, and her whole team runs out, grabs her, throws her on the shoulders, and is like, champion. You know, I look over, my team's on the floor laughing at me, okay? <laughs> They're like, I can't believe you just did that. Like, what happened? And so all it to be said, man, I got a little too confident in myself, and it didn't turn out well, okay? But have you ever had a moment like that? Have you had a moment where you were a little too confident in yourself and it didn't turn out well? Now, I think that all of us, uh, it's really natural and really easy for us to place our confidence in things other than God, right? It's easy to place our confidence in things we can see and feel and touch and, and rather than God. And so we have to ask the question, well, what happens if we do that? Is that wrong? Is that okay? What, what is the natural consequence from that? And in our story today, we're going to see David misplace his confidence and, and experience the consequences from that. And so while I felt like my loss to this girl was tragic, uh, the consequences for David's pride is much worse. So let's jump in uh, and read the story in 2 Samuel 24. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 13, kind of a bigger section, but to get the whole narrative through. Uh, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the, lord's, uh, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. That's where Jazzercise was invented. And then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went on out to Negev of Judah at Beersheba. Um, so when they had gone through all the land, that was their, all their travel, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months in 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men, fighting men, who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000, okay? Uh, verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, uh, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer to you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. My first point this morning that I want us to see is the severity of self-sufficiency. The severity of self-sufficiency. Now this part was kind of confusing to me because in verse 1 it says that God incited David to take a census, right? But then over in verse 10 it says that David was convicted that this census was actually sin, and he bears some pretty hard consequences to it, right? So how do you make sense of those two things? Like, did God make David sin? Did God make David fall in this way? 
Well, James 1, uh, 13 says that God is not tempted with evil, and God tempts no one with evil. So it can't be that God tempted him. That'd be contrary to who he is and contrary to the Bible. So what happened? Well, in 1 Chronicles 21, this is the parallel passage to what we're reading. It tells the same story. In verse 1 there, it says that Satan incited David. Um, so, and this brings clarity, right? Because basically what, what it's saying, simply put, is that uh, Satan is the one tempting David to take the census, and God is simply allowing it to happen, okay? I know that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but we've got to understand God never does evil or promotes evil or tempts towards evil. He cannot do that, but in his sovereign plan, in his, who he is as God, he will allow things to happen, temptations to come according to his will to accomplish his purposes. Uh, it's a lot like the story of Job. So just to understand, I know that's kind of a hard thing to grasp, but, but God isn't the one doing the tempting. Satan is. God is simply allowing David to make the choice of what he's going to do, right? Um, but here's what's happening with David's heart. Okay, um, God is angry. Verse one says that. And so he knows that the natural pa- pattern for God when he's angry at his children is to send other nations in to invade, essentially to discipline his children so they might turn to God, right? So it's saying, hey, uh, you know, Israel's not doing well. Let's send uh, another nation in to come in and kind of do some havoc so they might turn up to God, right? So David knows that. He knows that God will, will do that. And it's kind of like a wake-up call, right? Um, so David's saying, gosh, man, this isn't my first rodeo. Uh, I've got a couple options. And so his first option is, I could be a godly king, right? Uh, I could call the nation to repentance, to turn away from their sin, and then worship the one true God, right? That's option one, but he doesn't choose that. Instead, he chooses to take a census. Now, a census isn't inherently sinful. We have to understand that, uh, like the Bible gives uh, a layout for that of why to take a census, but we see that David wasn't simply taking a census to know how many people he had in general. Verse 9 says that he was taking the census to know how big his army was, right? It's different than just a general census, how many guys and girls we have. This is to see how big his army was, and it was big, right? Over a million soldiers, and you might think, again, Austin, I don't see the problem in that. Like, it's probably good to know how big your army is. Well, I think there are three main reasons this, sinful, uh, this census is sinful. And the first, uh, the first thing wrong is that the census reveals David's prideful delight, okay? Uh, so the problem hinges on the key word found in verse three, delight. Um, Joab comes and says, hey, David, he gives him his counsel and he says, uh, I'm just kind of questioning on why you want to do this. And so he asks, why does the Lord, my king, delight in this thing? David apparently overrides Joab's concern and just takes the census anyway. Um, and, and we saw earlier that David's delight was in the Lord, right? That was, he says, and in Psalms, he says, my delight, I delight in your words, do your, your will. And now his delight is changing to the size of his army. Do you see the, the difference? The t- he's, he's trying to rejoice and place his confidence in how big, how powerful, how unstoppable his army is. David used to be the shepherd boy that just hung out with sheep, but now he's a king over a powerful and growing nation. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's becoming somebody, right? He's become somebody with name recognition, and he's growing in popularity, and that's a dangerous place to be. And as I was reading this story and, and, and trying to just ask the Lord to convict my heart, um, I, I felt like the Lord pressed into me, Austin, have you done this same thing with City Light? 
Have you done the same thing with the church? I mean, a year and a half ago, Mo and I don't have the building. Many of you aren't a part of City Light yet. Finances aren't there. Nothing's there. And we're on our knees pleading with Jesus, God, would you move? Would you bring a building, a space for us to meet in? Would you bring people and givers? And would you save people and baptize people and start things and reach new neighborhoods? And we're pleading with them. And a year and a half later, God's provided a free building a lot of people, uh, 50 people have been baptized. We've got a high school ministry, a college ministry, refugee. I mean, so many things are happening, and it felt, I felt like God convicted me, and I, are you coasting right now? Like, if you, is your delight in the size of your church, are you doing the same thing that David is doing, or are you humbly delighting in me? I mean, for David, his delight changed, and now he's looking upward at God, I'm sorry, now, now he was looking upward at God for his delight, and now he's looking outward at the size of his army. Just thought, man, what a temptation that is for all of us. So that's where my sin is. That's where I've sinfully fallen, but what is it for you? What are ways that, that God has given you grace and given you gifts, and you've taken those gifts and turned them into a sinful purpose? What is it? What, what, what is your delight? We have to continually, day by day, rely on God, right? And it's just so crazy to me to think about, like the very things we struggle with, the very things we're sinning against God with are usually in response to his gracious gift. So you're, you're delighting in your bank account? Well, God gave you the ability to have that job to earn that money. You know, it doesn't mean, oh, you're delighting in your children more than God. Well, God gave you the gift of children. Does it make sense just to see God is so gracious? And the thing about it is like, he de- still, he allows us to do those things. He could just take everything away, and our only ability is to delight in him, but he doesn't do that. It's, it's, it's wild. It's grace. So just to know, uh, um, to check in on our prideful delight and see, see where that is. So the sec- second thing wrong is that the census displays David's lack of faith. His lack of faith. So David's getting old. He knows that. He's not going to be king for much longer, and he's going to have to pass the throne down to his, his son. And so uh, he's wondering, gosh, what's, what's going to happen? What, you know, what's, what's the future hold for us? And so he starts, he starts thinking, gosh, how, how big is my army going to be? Is Solomon going to be okay? Essentially, he's checking his retirement account, right? Like, how much is in there? Have I done a good job investing? And um, the problem with that is that David is calculating, right? He's thinking, gosh, you know, I wonder, um, I wonder if uh, we're just powerful enough now to take on our enemies ourselves, right? I know God is mad at us, and he's probably not going to help us since he's mad, so I wonder if there's any way that when our enemies come, if we can just take them on by ourselves without the help of God, right? That's the heart behind this census. That's why it's sinful. He's calculating, and, and he's losing this faith in God. I mean, uh, and, and, and to forget the promises of God, it seems to be wild for this guy, right? I mean, this is David we're talking about, the guy that so wholeheartedly trusted in God that he stood toe-to-toe with a giant saying, I know, God, you're big enough, and he defeated him. And now David's faith changes, and he starts to delight and put his faith in the size of his army rather than the size of his God, Right? And, and the absurdity of this is that all along, God's people have never won a battle based on how big the army was, right? Like in Judges chapter 7, you find a guy named Gideon, and Gideon beats uh, this huge army of the Midianites with 300 people. Like, like God doesn't save based on if he has a lot or a little, he will win if he wants to, right? So why would we ever start to go off and think, man, I just need a big army to win? No, 
We don't need a big army because we have a big God, amen? And we don't need to worry about fighting for ourselves because Exodus 14 says that God is fighting for us. We can be still. So you see David's lack of faith. The third thing wrong with the senses is that it shows David's discontentment, right? It shows his discontentment. So you don't, you don't really go out and count how many fighting men you have unless you're planning on picking a fight, Right? So, but, but God never told David to go fight. God never told David to go battle. David should have been delighting in God, keeping his eyes on him and remembering all that God has done. But David's looking to the next adventure, the next thrill, the next battle, the next story, the next adrenaline, adrenaline rush. I mean, he's discontent, restless, and he's looking for more instead of resting and cherishing what God has already won for him, right? You see his discontentment. This is the severity of self-sufficiency. And so look what happens. In verse 10, David's heart struck him and he confesses that he has greatly sinned. And this is so unique, the wording, because after he committed an affair with Bathsheba, uh, adultery with her, he confesses, I have sinned. But after this census, he says, I have greatly sinned, adding emphasis to it. So he's saying, man, this is, you could even probably say, this is worse than his affair with Bathsheba. And we might say, that doesn't make sense. But he, again, it's showing how seriously God opposes self-sufficiency. So after confessing, uh, David, uh, God goes to, uh, tells David, hey, you got three options to choose from. Uh, you can have uh, three years of famine, so that means no Chick-fil-A, no Chipotle, no, you know, definitely not guac, you know, and then that doesn't sound good. Uh, three months of enemies attacking them, nope, doesn't sound awesome, or three days of pestilence, which is a plague, and again, these aren't options, but they show how severe this is. Church, uh, David's census bears a remarkable uh, closeness to Israel's sin in 1 Samuel. Uh, so if you remember back, in the, back there, they, they said, hey, we, we demand a king. We want a king other than God to be our security, to be our treasure. And in the same way, David's saying, hey, I want a big army now to replace God as my security and my treasure. It's tragic. Um. Church, when any of us delight in anything other than God, be that a big army, a bank account, a spouse, a healthy family, a growing church, a big home, a stable job, or a life of moral goodness, we can be assured that we're in the same predicament as David, and it always ends disastrous. So whatever you're holding on to right now, Like whatever you don't want to let go of, whatever has a grip on your heart, whatever you think is your confidence, whatever you possess that makes you think that you're self-sufficient can be a massive offense to God, a massive offense to God. And it's not because he's looking, saying, waiting for you to sin so he can smack you. No, it's because he's looking, saying, all of those things are worthless compared to me. I'm better and I'm not going to let you mess around with lesser things, right? Right? So all of those other things, they may be good, but they're not God. And it angers him because to put your delight in anything else other than him is to make the suicidal exchange of infinite value for a fading trinket. He's better. I mean, it's like like you you, want to shake someone that commits an adultery on a beautiful, caring, faithful spouse. Like, why would you forsake that? Why would you give that up for something so cheap and so less? And we do it all the time. Jesus is better. He is worth, uh, worthy of your delight, and he will not let you sell out for something lesser. 
and that's a good grace. So let's see how God responds. Let's read verses 14 through 17. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. My second point is, the mercy of God's wrath. The mercy of God's wrath. So David chooses three days of pestilence, uh, which seems like the ripping off the band-aid option, right? Like, let's just get it over with. Let's just get it done quick. Uh, But notice that David is still trusting in the mercy of God. Verse 14, he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. So David knows that even in God's wrath, that even in God's punishment and his discipline, he is still faithfully merciful, right? And so we find out that the plague has killed 70,000 men, most of which were probably numbered in the account for how many soldiers he has, right? So that number is starting to dwindle down. I mean, God is showing David that he cannot count on the size of his army. And he's showing us today that we cannot rely, we cannot place our confidence on anything other than God. We can count on God and God alone, right? It's futile to place our hope. You want to place your hope in in an army? It could be wiped out in a second. Place your hope in in a a family member, gone in a second. All of those things should be gone, but our king, Jesus, is alive forevermore. Now, when reading that 70,000 men die, the natural question arises, man, is God overreacting here? Like, is this, is this okay? Like, does the punishment really fit the crime? I mean, it seems a little harsh, and, and that might be natural. I've talked to people that, that think that this scars the character of God and the goodness of God, but let me give you a couple reasons why God is just and merciful to do this, okay? The first one is that all of Israel is guilty of sin against God, right? Everyone's guilty of sin against God. The story sounds like David sins by taking the census, and then, he, and then God responds by really taking it out on the whole nation. But verse 1 makes it clear that all of Israel has sinned, and God has mad at all of Israel. See, when God brings judgment upon a society, uh, he does that because the entire society has rebelled against him and become depraved. So you get the story of Noah and God bringing the flood because there was no one innocent. Everyone was rebelling and depraved. You get the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and all these people are living recklessly and sexually perverted. You get the story of uh, Nineveh and Job's story, or I'm sorry, Jonah's story. And, uh, and again, everyone w- was wicked, turned away from God and attacking weaker nations. But we have to understand God's knee-jerk reaction to our sin and our failure is not to get angry and pour out wrath. That's not his first response. Exodus 34, 6 says that God is slow to anger, right? So, so that's not his knee-jerk is to show kindness and grace, but when a society reaches a certain level, God steps in and says, enough. I will not allow my people, the weak, the, the helpless, the vulnerable, to be oppressed and stomped more and more. Enough, you're done. 
And I know that 70,000 lives were taken, but there were over a million that lived that deserved the same punishment. Do you see that? We want to focus in on the 70, but there are a million more that lived and were granted life. I mean, why, why didn't they die? Why didn't God punish them too? And it's the same for us today. I mean, Romans 3 makes it clear that every single one of us have sinned and sinned before a holy God, right? We, we've all rebelled against him. And Romans 6 makes it clear that the punishment for that sin is death. So all of us deserve death and yet look around. God is still putting breath in our lungs and pumping blood through our hearts. It's mercy that you're alive. We've got to see that the gift of that, it would be perfectly just for God to take away the breath right now from every single one of us. It's a mercy that we're alive. And so friends, if we understand the depth of our sin, what will surprise us, what will confound us is not his judgment, but his mercy, right? We won't fixate on 70,000. We'll fixate on the fact that millions more deserve to die, and yet God spared them through his mercy. The second reason that he is merciful and just is that God has a redemptive purpose. He has a redemptive purpose. So look at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who's working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. So um, if someone hurts or abuses my wife, this may be sinful of me, but if I catch them, I will want to hurt them. And I'll probably want to continue to hurt them until someone pulls me off of them, right? Again, might be sinful, but nonetheless, that's my natural response is going to be that. But if my daughter, if she hurts or offends my wife, I'm going to discipline her only to the point of her understanding what she did wrong. You see the difference in that? Like, like for, for the man uh, that hurt my wife or abused my wife, like I want to hurt him and inflict hurt and continue to inflict hurt. But for my daughter, and he doesn't really matter to me, but for my daughter, I, I, I want to discipline her, even if it, she, if it hurts her, not physically, but, but to, you know, don't call it like child protective services, but I will discipline her, put her on time out or whatever, or not give her some blueberries and cheese so that she would understand the right path. And no parent enjoys disciplining their children. Do you see the difference between that? And that's what we're seeing right now in God relenting. See, God wants, he, he, he doesn't want to wipe out the whole nation. He wants the whole nation to turn and repent and worship him. It's, he, God is not some angry God that's wanting to punish and wipe out every single person. His desire is that we turn away. It's not an angry husband beating up someone. It's, it's a loving father disciplining their child. We have to see the difference in that. God isn't looking at you and I as rebellious criminals. He's looking at us, at us as disobedient orphan children that need his love. He doesn't want to wipe out the whole nation. He wants the whole nation to worship him. See, we, we may think that 70,000 lives are a lot to lose, lose, but Israel was heading to something far worse. 70,000 is a drop in the ocean compared to the wrath they could have received had God allowed them to continue down that road right? And he works the same thing in our lives. See, when he sees us ruining our lives with our sin, he cares too much about us to let us follow that course. So sometimes in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his grace, he will inflict pain to protect us from what we could walk into, right? And that's a grace. Um, please understand this. True wrath would be God allowing us to get away with sin, and continue down that road of destruction. 
Does that make sense? Like discipline is goodness. Discipline is love. Discipline is a good father. Letting us get away with that would be wrath. There's a guy uh, in our college ministry, and, um, and he played football in high school and was really good and had scholarship offers and had dreams and hope and vision and all of this stuff planned out. And the first uh, playoff game of, uh, of his senior year, he has a career-ending injury. Gone in an instant. Hopes, dreams, football, all, that, all those plans are gone, Right? And, and like that, that's hard to internalize, but afterwards he realizes, by God's grace, that God actually did that he, because he was so enraptured by football that it became his God. And while football is the greatest sport ever invented, amen, you can't disagree with that right now because I said amen, yeah, I'm from here, but uh, it makes a horrible God. It makes a horrible God. You want to worship football and play football? Your knee could go out in a second. You want to worship football and a certain team, they could have a losing season. It's a, it's a great sport, but it's a miserable God. And God graciously, rather than letting him walk down that dark path of worshiping football, ripped it away from him and gave him true life. And guess what? Now he's walking daily with Jesus. He's got a beautiful relationship that's godly and centered around Jesus. He, he's, he's walking in purity, enjoying community, and freed from the idol of football. See, God's wrath was actually mercy, right? God taking that away was actually the best thing that could have happened to him. And so, church, if I can just press in and ask the question and compel, it would just compel you, would you trust God when he takes something away? W- would you trust him when he takes something away? I don't always know why, but we don't need to have all the answers because we know he's good, right? And I, I wanted to say this, Anything that's been taken from you, it doesn't mean that everything that's been taken is because you've sinned and held on to it too tightly. Don't hear me say that. Some of it has been taken away because of that reason. But other things are just a result of sin, just a result of a broken world that, that have been taken away. It's not just because you've held on tightly, but would you trust God when things are taken away from you? Rather than turning away in anger, would you trust him and say, God, I know you're good. So when we can't understand his hand, we have to trust his heart, Right? So open your hands to whatever you're holding on to a little too tightly. Uh, uh, give him access and full permission to every aspect of your life. And listen, he will have your heart either way. Either by you submitting everything to him or by him graciously taking it for himself. Because he loves you that much. I love that we have a God that will take things from us in order to give us something so much better, which is himself. So trust him when he takes something away. And so David cries out uh, to the Lord in verse 17. He says, Behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But God doesn't grant his request. He gives him something so much better. I don't know if you know this, but God answers every single one of your prayers, right? Like you can take confidence in that. Sometimes he says, yes, absolutely, here you go. Sometimes he says, not yet, you need to wait for it, but I'm going to give it to you. And sometimes he says, no, that's actually not what you want. Here's what you really want. Here's what you really need and gives us something so much better. Be assured, God hears your prayers and he answers them graciously, far better. I mean, if we got everything we prayed for, it would probably be in a bad spot, right? So God gives us um, according to his will. But let's, uh, that's just a little side nugget. Let's read uh, verses 18 through 25 and finish up our story. 
And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. So David went up to Gad, at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. Uh, and when Aaron looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. Uh, and Aaron went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aaron said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy from you uh, for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea of, for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. My last thing I want us to see is the beauty of brokenness. The beauty of brokenness. So a prophet named Gad uh, tells David, hey, hey, go, uh, this is what God wants you to do. Go find a guy named Arana. He's got a threshing fo- floor, some land, and actually go buy that and build an altar there. So he says, okay, and he goes and does it. So he goes to buy the land. Arana respectfully is like, hey, you know what? You don't have to pay for this. You're my king. Just offer up whatever's good. David's like, no, I, my sacrifice to the Lord needs to cost me something, and so he pays him. Um, so he buys the land, uh, s- uh, the oxen is sacrificed, he builds the altar, sacrifices the oxen as a peace offering, peace offering, God accepts his offer and averts the plague entirely. It's amazing news, right? Seems like that's awesome, the story's re- restored and redeemed, everything's back to normal, but it gets so much better than that. Uh, what this passage doesn't mention is this land that David bought is on Mount Moriah, Okay, it's on Mount Moriah. And back in Genesis, this is the very same place where Abraham was going to offer up his only son, Isaac, but God stopped him and said, no, offer up a lamb instead. Right? Beautiful story of God's grace. And then in First Chronicles, we find out that this is the same place where King Solomon, David's son, would build the temple. Okay, so like historically, this is crazy. I mean, these are three different stories happening at different times, but at the same place to pointing to the same hopeful reality that a day would come when someone would offer a sacrifice that would forever satisfy the wrath of God and take away sins forever, and his name is Jesus. This points to him. This anticipates him. This looks forward to him, the true lamb, the better sacrifice, the perfect King Jesus. Do you see what God has been up to all along? I mean, if you were to look through First and Second Samuel and you were to list what are David's two biggest sins, what are his two biggest failures, you would have to say his uh, affair with Bathsheba, covering up with uh, killing Uriah, and then taking the census. Okay, well, what did God do in response to David's failures? What did he do in response to these two things? Okay, first, his affair with Bathsheba. David eventually marries Bathsheba. They eventually have a son named Solomon, and Solomon eventually becomes the king of Israel, right? Solomon writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Kids don't read that. When you get a little older, you can, okay? But, but he, so he, he does like, God uses him in amazing, beautiful ways, and this is a man that's a product of a relationship that started as an affair, King Solomon that wrote these three books of the Bible is a product of a relationship that started with an affair. 
okay? God is doing something in the midst of that sin, okay? Second thing, taking the census. What does God do in response to that? Hey, David, thanks for repenting. Go buy some land. Okay, he goes and buys this land, and the land gets turned into the ground where the temple will be built, this is, the temple is where God's holy people are, where his presence dwells, where his people come to offer sacrifices and worship him and love him and adore one another. I mean, this is crazy. This, this is the land that David bought in response to his sin and his census. God is redeeming David's sin in a most beautiful, sovereign way. And so hear me when I say this. You've got to get this. God hates our sin, but he doesn't waste it. He works it for his will and our good. God, doesn't, God, God hates our sin, but he doesn't waste it. He, he works it for his will and our good. And listen, if God can redeem David's story and David's sin, then he can surely redeem yours, right? It, it, it's amazing. I mean, Genesis 50, 20 says that what you intended for evil, God used for good. And this is the business that our king is in, taking what seems broken beyond repair and making it into something beautiful, um, I don't know if you've ever had something like it's bro- like your, your house or uh, like something that's broken in your house or on your car or your television or something you own, and you don't really have the finances to pay for it and the means to pay for it, so you just kind of neglect to admit that it's broken. You had a moment like that? Like my check engine light is like flashing right now, and I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't really see it, you know? My wife's like, you need to check that out. I'm like, nah, I don't have any money right now. You know, it's like this kind of thing where, like, the tread on my tires is, like, showing. Like, there's some white on the bottom of my tires. I don't think it's normal, but I'm like, I think they're fine. They got another thousand miles. I kind of kick them, you know? We just naturally don't want to admit that something's wrong if we don't have a way to fix it. You get me what I'm saying right there? We don't want to naturally admit that something's wrong unless we have a way to fix it. And I think we do the same thing spiritually, right? Like in every single one of us, I mean, there's a darkness about us. There, there's skeletons in all of our closets. There's secrets and struggles that we don't want to admit because we don't think there's a way to fix it. And so what do we do? Do, do we hide and do we put our church mask on Sunday morning and act like everything's okay and then go about our life? That sounds like a horrible life. I mean, do, do we try and read a bunch of self-help books and get better and get stronger and, and, and just get our lives together and then we go into community and meet new people and do, no, sounds like a horrible life. And so can I honestly ask you, have you given up? Have you thrown the proverbial towel in and waved the white flag and just said, I'm just going to continue to struggle with this for the rest of my life. I'm just going to keep this a secret because there's no solution to my sin. Have you, have you neglected to acknowledge that you even have a problem or that there's a way to fix it? And if that's you this morning, I hope that you are encouraged and comforted by 2 Samuel 24. Right? In this passage, God is saying, Jesus is saying, there is nothing too broken that his healing hands can't fix. Right? There's nothing so lost that his searching love can't come after and find. There's nothing too dark that his perfect and holy light can't come in and shine and reveal and take home. Friends, be assured that if God can redeem an adulterous, murderer, liar, self-sufficient man, that he can surely redeem your story. Some of the greatest tragedies and sin of my life have been the very ones that God has used most in my ministry. It's okay to not be okay. 
So admit your brokenness and watch God make it beautiful. And it doesn't matter if you're struggling with uh, self-sufficiency, if you're struggling with self-harm or self-doubt, God can redeem that for something incredible. Would you let him do that? You don't have to hide behind your sin because Jesus can transform it into something incredible. And back in verse 17, David sees his sin, he confesses it, and he asks God, he says, please, would you punish me? I'm the guilty one. What have they done? And this is a beautiful gesture, right? It sounds like David's really stepping up in a heroic way, but this points to a better sacrifice. See, rather than saying, hey, they're innocent, punish the guilty one, Jesus says, they're guilty, punish the innocent one. Isn't that beautiful? He flips that, 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 that on, on its head and he says, no, they're, they're guilty, but punish the innocent one. Take it out on, on me. And it did. It happened. God did that. The wrath that you and I deserve, the death that you and I deserve to die, Jesus took on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he, he really bled and he really was broken and he really died so that you and I could really have eternal life in him. And this is the cross and the resurrection is the ultimate picture of how God can take something so tragic and so broken and make it be the sign of our victory, right? Redeeming and restoring. And you get this church as a picture of it that he can take broken sinners and, and use them and, and build them. And it's just it's beautiful. So would you not hide behind the facade that you have everything together? Would you admit that you're broken and see God make it beautiful?